You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Sorry, I just wanted to get out a try. But uh, here we are, back inside the four walls of the Musicians Guild. And as always, I thank you for being here and I thank you for listening. So we're back after taking a week off. Not necessarily for the holidays, but just needed a break. Needed to get some perspective. I think that I've done enough episodes now where... I was starting to take in the input and the positive feedback too much and it kind of makes me lose my way as far as where I want to go with this. Me being the annoying bastard that I am, I'm always trying to put the most thought into each episode as possible and always try and retain this sort of vision and focus of what it is that I'm trying to convey. Every time I sit down to record an intro for an episode, I have this same sort of anxiety, which is far beyond any anxiety I've ever felt before playing a show, but is actually kind of similar to pre-recording anxiety, uh, working on a record or playing any instrument for any sort of recording. I have this immense desire to always value every second of each one of you spending your time to listen to this, while also knowing that I'm not nearly important enough for anyone to hold on to every word I'm saying. So with those two things on the opposite ends of my, how should we say, creative motivational spectrum, I'm always trying to find that balance. So now that we've got that mundane footnote, that nobody needed out of the way. Uh, I hope everybody enjoyed their holidays, however you celebrate, whether you know you take a curated, progressive view on what and how to celebrate, or you're a traditionalist doing that normie shit. Uh, at least people trying to be happy and enjoy their time during a very not enjoyable time on earth for many of us right now is generally a good thing. I don't need to like Christmas music to like people enjoying Christmas music and being happier because of it. I can understand an innocuous holiday created a long time ago, which has been given capitalist steroids in America over the past however many decades, while still appreciating 
the true joy that people get from working their ass off to make money, to buy things for themselves and other people to feel good. I resent the virtue and the value of materialism, but I don't resent the consciousness of those who don't have the means and the luxury of living, seeing, and thinking beyond those things that I resent and how it's all a lot of people have to feel worth and joy and value. Do I wish it was not like that? I very much wish it was not like that. But, for lack of a better term, playing the hand we are dealt is a very prevalent theme, in my view, of being a human on earth. And likewise, with the new year upon us, I get that a lot of people like to have this Roman Gregorian calendar determine when they're going to make a change or put things behind them. Uh, But I personally don't view the world that way. I don't think the universe gives a shit about that. I think ultimately we decide when we do something. Uh, The only thing that we would even have a shred of control over is our own perception and our own way of viewing and living within the world. But I respect those that like to just have that, uh, I guess, Roman Gregorian reset. And on December 31st, it's a time for them to, I guess, think they're going to put something behind and give themselves hope by enacting, you know, new ideas for change in how someone wants to live or think or be. All that said, this is not my sort of diplomatic way of being above it all. I can only just speak from my own place in the world and how I view things. So again, you do you. I back it. Maybe I'm just all hopped up from my uh, decaf. Uh, I miss real coffee so much. I miss having that strong smack of caffeine, that subtle eye twitch, that little bit of face numbing. Your thoughts kind of just racing around the track of your mind in an infinite loop. Uh, Spoken like a true fader, huh? (laughs) I guess I've just been missing caffeine, having been writing so much more music lately, and it kind of being new to me to do it without the aid of uh, caffeine all day long. It's cool, though, because it forces us to find a new method and new ways and expand our mind. But, you know, everything I do, even just jibbing into this mic now, or writing music, or, you know, deciding what it is, all of it could be boiled down to, you know, just brainwaves surfing on these synaptic junctions and me kind of becoming comfortable with however that's going and accepting that as the default uh, modus operandi. But through my own mindfulness practice, uh, brick by brick, step by step, I'm trying to, first of all, just see them, understand them, and then slowly work towards having these processes go the way I want. And, uh, you know, it's a lot. 
it's a lot to be thinking and aware and it's extremely overwhelming to finally be smart enough to understand how truly stupid I am. So, uh, doing it without caffeine is beneficial in a lot of ways, but sometimes feels like trying to do it with a weighted vest on. I'm grateful for the lubrication of tetrahydrocannabinol, as I am also grateful for all the positive feedback that still continues to come in. I can't even express to you how far beyond anything I could have expected it all is, and it's my duty to fight the mindfuck of positive feedback because I think it's the death for me of me putting out anything of quality Uh, But regardless, I appreciate it so much. I just am super stoked that anybody listens and gets any sort of enjoyment or relaxation uh, out of this. So again, a million thanks. So that is enough of my babbling. On to today's guest. Today's guest is my very old friend, Lucy Barinkova. Lucy is a front of house engineer, live sound engineer, as well as a production manager and a tour manager. I think that she's probably done a bunch of other jobs that I'm not really listing, but it's okay because I think I listed the main stuff that she would like to be known for. Lucy is from Austria, where she did most of her growing up. Uh, She isn't originally from there, and we get into that in the podcast as we kind of do a very brief overview of her, um, I guess, history and how she ended up where she ended up at different stages of her life. Lucy has toured with a pretty diverse array of bands, including Spoon, The Knife, Flying Lotus, Thundercat, uh, RX Bandits, The Hives, Refused, Gaslight Anthem, and the list goes on. Uh, usually doing front of house, but has also gotten into doing monitors at certain times and production managing and tour managing. She currently production manages Usher. Yes, the R&B act Usher. And, you know, I often joke that I've lived at least two people's worth of life at my age. And I mentioned this during our conversation, but Lucy has lived maybe nine or 10 people's worth of life. Uh, Even by her teenage years, she had gone through so many things that most people will never really understand, let alone endure in their childhood. So, Aside from the sort of adversity and hardships that she overcame, we kind of get into a brief overview of her history, how she got to doing sound, her first tours, how she made it to America, uh, some of the crazy stories during that whole journey, including being detained at the Canadian-American border, somehow making it back to finish a tour with us in RX and uh, 
you know, we discuss a little bit more fun stuff as well, like what her personal production manager writer is, what she's up to now, um, training to become a healer, and how she's spending her time now during, I guess, the collapse of the touring industry as a whole. And yeah, it was really good to sit down with her. Uh, like I said, Lucy's a really old friend, and... You know, she used to tour with RX as our front of house engineer. And, you know, although we keep in contact, uh, this is the first time that we've sat down and had this sort of cohesive conversation, uh, diving into the details of a lot of these things that I already knew about her, but didn't know certain details and thoughts and feelings that she had uh, regarding them. So even though we know each other so well, I still learned a lot more about her during this conversation. And so it was really cool for me. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Lucy Barinkova. called um vietnam that radio station good morning vietnam <laughs> you mean the robin williams movie yeah <laughs> that's a good movie no no i just said it <laughs> oh i remind you of robin williams just right now this i don't know the whole thing i was just looking out and i saw a helicopter and i don't know i just i was waiting for your radio voice to come through and i'm like oh wow i don't have a radio Sorry, voice i just, don't. <laughs> I just don't. how did you know about good morning vietnam huh did you watch that movie in austria i don't know when i watched it i have no idea that was an 80s movie though yeah yeah you probably did. It was probably dubbed in like not even German. It was probably like some weird <laughs> Czech version. <laughs> you could buy at a truck stop or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, all right, are you ready? Yeah. Uh, just kidding. You don't have to be ready. There's nothing to like. <laughs> there's nothing to uh, change or do. <laughs> um. So at least at the very least, it, it's even though I know most of this stuff, it's still interesting to me about your, I guess just your life has had a crazy path recently, but even from the very beginning of your life, it's had a crazy path. So I guess by nationality, you're Austrian, right? Yeah, on a paper. On paper. Mm -hmm. that, exactly. That's what I mean. Mm -hmm. On paper, you're Austrian. Mm-hmm. But by blood, you're Russian and Czech. Yes. <laughs> and you spent the first, how many years of your life in Czech Republic? That was Czechoslovakia. Oh, right. First uh, you're right. eight years, nine years. Yeah, that's, that was actually foolish of me. It's very much not Czech Republic. It was very much Czechoslovakia. It was then. very much communist, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so how old were you when you guys came, your family came to Austria? Um, we escaped and I was just about nine. 
that's crazy because just moving to another country at nine would be already so hard, but to do it under those circumstances at that age where you're already thinking and like smart enough to understand everything that's going on and feel real fear and all that stuff. It's like, that's so intense. Yeah. Cause I grew up with, uh, with the fear, um, the danger of KGB, uh, neighbors telling on each other, you know? Oh yeah. Um, so I was, because <laughs> I'm a very curious human being, my parents always had to kind of put me in a corner and be like, you cannot ask these questions outside. Yeah, that makes um, sense. Yeah. So I was always kind of, and I was explained what the political situation was, who the good guys were, who the bad guys were. Even as a kid, even yeah, as a kid, yeah. they didn't sugarcoat anything, or they didn't like keep it from you. They sat you down and was like, "This is what's up." Um, not through that one serious uh, conversation. It just it was just part of uh, educating me. Um, you know, yeah. the upbringing. Um, because there was a lot of I was I was questioning a lot of things, like good parents do. And um, yeah, my father. They talked about the West. Um, they spoke about the music, the culture, the freedom. Um, but I wasn't allowed to express it on the outside. So being at school, being with friends, um, I was—I knew there's a different reality. Than the one I, you were living. Than the one all of my friends were living. So I was kind of now looking at it a little bit of a outsider. <laughs> yeah. You know? So um, by the time you got to Austria at nine, you said? Yeah. Was it like an instant change opening up? Like, oh, wow, this is a totally different situation. Like life is so different already. Or was there some transitional period where shit was still weird? Like. Well, it was the way we uh, left Czech Republic, you know, the way my father came home and said, we're leaving tonight. Um, I was aware of the, that I'm not able to see my grandparents ever again. My family, I couldn't say goodbye. We packed, we left. So for me, the journey in itself was uh, already a kind of a painful process. Yeah. Transition. I was transitioning into a different human. So, um, yeah. And of course, the day we woke up on the West, uh, I looked outside and there was a um, public swimming pool with all these like uh, plastic colored uh, uh, slides. Yeah. And for the first time, I saw pink plastic and green plastic. And I knew where. We're in Disneyland. We're in, there's definitely candy on the trees and there's definitely honey somewhere. Yeah. Haribo everywhere. Yes. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, it was a different feeling. Wow. Well. That you, was the first moment. Yeah. But, you know, then you, reality comes different. Though. In that one answer, you did such a great job of painting like the picture and that contrast, you know what I mean, mm. of that experience. And uh, obviously you were set up to be a badass at a very young age, you know. 
to sort of have to make it through that and to navigate all that and to survive, you know what I mean? And to mm-hmm. not give up. And I mean this psychologically, you know what I mean? Like emotionally. So, oh, it's afternoon. So those are the street sweepers again. <laughs> Always. This is like their third appearance on the podcast. <laughs> so, because oftentimes we end up recording on Thursday or Friday. All right. So now you're in Austria. Mm-hmm. Did you drive over? Train. No? You mean from Czech Republic to Austria? Yeah. It was a whole two and a half month adventure. Oh, that was a two and a half month adventure. The escape in itself, yes. Okay, so there was. It's safe to say that there was multiple forms of transportation yes, involved. Different tricks and hiding and doing things. Yeah, till we uh, got to Austria to the refugee camp. And was that in Graz? That was outside of Vienna. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, you could seek refuge, and then they would help you to. Uh, get political asylum outside of uh outside of the Europe. So Okay, cool. Yeah. Um so eventually your family ended up in Graz where you did the majority of your youth like growing up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, through through the Alps, through the mountains, refugee camp and that then Graz. Did looking back now like are are you stoked on that Graz area being the place that you grew up? Mm-hmm. I say that because I've been to Graz. So I know what it looks like. And it very much reminds me of where I come from in Northern California, you know, uh, in Sonoma County. Mm-hmm. Like, so, you know, I was just curious about how you felt about that because at the same time, it also means that they're like kind of smaller places, <laughs> not like, huge metropolitan area. So we didn't have like all kinds of tons of cool shows and stuff uh, that like big cities did, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But obviously we're going to get to it. You started making shit happen there mm-hmm. in Graz. <laughs> okay. So there's so much I'm so, I'm so curious about still. Um, so eventually you end up in Graz, mm-hmm. you're nine years old, mm-hmm. you do the school thing, Right. You're just being a kid for a while. Yes. Obviously, you've had to go through some crazy, crazy things, some really stressful things that most kids still will never have to go through. But uh, how did you come to even think about live shows and your part in them doing sound and stuff like that? (laughs) Did you get into bands and shows before? No, when I so when I was in Graz um, at art school, <laughs> I uh, I met a gentleman who was in a band, um, probably the only groupie that was not really interested or found it amazing. I just I w- I didn't understand what a band is. I just saw him up there with a guitar music i had no relationship to music at that point really um and uh through him i came into the whole music music scene um 
it was easier for me to have less social anxiety around people in a really loud environment <laughs> because I had such a strong accent. I was just learning German at that time. So for me, being just around shows, stage diving and hugging and going crazy and singing along, I had an equal part to be a part of and I wasn't judged in that sense too much. So I felt immediately drawn to a music community. So do you think you still have an accent when you speak Austrian German? Yeah. You still speak it with like kind of a Czech accent to them? When I speak when I speak Czech, I have a German accent. <laughs> when I speak German, I have an Czech or American accent. When I'm speaking English, I have I don't even know. <laughs> yes, I don't have I always have an accent, basically. That's cool though. It works for you. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, it's it's amazing. And in the what the 14 years that I've known you, like your accent is held steady. And you speak excellent English, obviously. Like perfect English. But Yeah. It's cool. You have a cool accent, man. I can tell you that. <laughs> um, all right. So these shows that you started getting into, you basically were together with someone that was in a band. And were they locally popular? Yeah. Right. Yeah, so they like yeah. they were the type of band when they played at least a couple hundred people would show up. Right. Yeah. It'd be like a rager. Mm -hmm. So where were these first shows at? I was kind in a venue. Just typical 90s, 90s venues, punk, punk clubs or in the park or during a demonstration or it was around 1995, 96. You were like 13? Mm hmm. Because you're, a, yeah, you're a few, couple years younger than me. Mm -hmm. Come on, how many punk clubs were in Graz in 95? One. Okay, that was, you're house. making this sound, okay, a music house. Yes. So was it an all ages type place or was it a bar? Um, it was a bar, but you could, you could get in with 15, 16 and. Oh yeah, I mean, anybody who's been out there knows that <laughs> that culture, they're, they're not tripping on kids drinking. No. No, they, they really aren't like. Uh, they're tripping on people driving and stuff more than they're pe tripping on people uh, drinking. But it was a music rock club, okay. so yeah, they would play all kinds of alternative, really loud, and we would just play tish foosball and drink and dance or watch yeah. a show. And it was it was a playground. <laughs> I miss playing foosball in Austria. <laughs> tish foosball. Yeah. You know when we played arena of the few the multiple times we played arena in Vienna. Mm -hmm. They had the small bar like at the other mm -hmm. end of the courtyard with the foosball table. We had some good foosball games in there, actually. Yeah. Some fond memories. <laughs> some very fond memories. Yeah. All right. So you're at shows in Graz. Mm -hmm. What's it called? Rock house? What a typical music, German Music house. <laughs> <laughs> or music house. <laughs> uh, and a youth center, that's where a lot of things happened. And they were they were uh, supporting bands or kids in bands. There was always a band contest happening yeah. in the city. It's yeah. Kinda cool. That makes sense. And the youth center was called Explosive. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I just said the same. It was explosive. Yeah. <laughs> to be exact. Uh. 
we would say explosive here, but they would say, are explosive, you going to... <laughs> explosive. <laughs> das explosive. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> I think because sativa. Anyway, um, so you're at shows, you're rocking out, you're doing like kids do. I did the same thing in my town of the same size. I bet Santa Rosa and Graz are like similar populations too, to be honest. And like a skate scene, right? Yeah, it That's was a really was. strong skate yeah. scene in Santa Rosa. Skateboarding was our thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly, <laughs> exactly. So where do you go from there that gets you closer to eventually be like ending up behind the soundboard? Um, I was a tomboy. I was, I just, I just loved shows. I loved skateboarding. I love, and all of my friends or most of my friends were, I just wanted to be a part of the boys club. That's what it was. <laughs> so I wanted to go on tour. They were playing around Germany and Switzerland, just, you know. And um, they were always leaving on tour on the weekends. And I wanted to be a part of it. Your so, boyfriend's band? Yeah. Oh. On other bands. there And other bands. Yeah, and there, there were other bands as well. And so I learned how to... How to <laughs> wrap cables, set up microphones, you know, do that kind of stuff. And uh, and uh, started getting into audio engineering. He put me in front of the desk and said, you're good. You have a talent for it. Go for it. And he pushed me kind of to learn it, to make sure. Um, just threw you into it. He just threw me into it, yeah. What was the first show that you ever did sound for? <laughs> first one. That was Oi Poloi. Oi Poloi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> In a basement. And uh, my boyfriend at the time had a small audio company. You know, just a small setup. So he would do shows. He would mix shows in different parks or wherever. And uh, he just double booked himself in two different locations. So He left you at the Oi Poloi show. So we set it up and he's just like, okay, now you go for it. I got to go. I have to be somewhere else. And left. That was before real cell phones. <laughs> so um, Oi Poloi. Oi Poloi was there. The and, British skinhead punk band. Yeah. They show up, mm-hmm. and there is a young, blonde, or brunette, dirty blonde, blue-eyed Austrian lady behind the soundboard. And like 15, 16, 16 yeah. probably, yeah. Were they nice to you? I don't know. I was so freaking in fear. I don't remember <laughs> anything. The whole... All I just remember is just being, I was sweating so much. (laughs) (laughs) And it was, I think the only thing that saved me was that I was a girl and I didn't speak any English, so I couldn't really talk back. So when they would say something to me, I would be like, I don't understand. Um, And um, I think if I would have been a dude, they would have ripped my head off. All the (laughs) feedback that was going on that night. And they didn't, luckily. Was it a sizable board or was it, where was that show? That show was at, um, in a basement. 
So it's just. Was it like a four channel mixer or something? Or was there more if there was? I think it was like maybe 14 around that. Or, oh. Yeah. Okay. So you had all the drums mic'd up. Yeah. There were mics on the guitar cabs mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that makes sense. All right. That was a serious setup. Mm-hmm. And how did the show go? Feedback nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't understand what it means. What What is it like doing monitors from front of house? I, I just didn't understand anything about signal flow. So yeah. I, I had no clue what was happening. Signal flow is still complex. It's mm. It actually takes a lot to learn why the sound of something needs to travel through all these different pieces of equipment and through all the channels. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It takes a lot. You know, it's not a simple concept. Like that's complicated stuff, which is also why it's awesome and amazing. But anyway, so you made it through that first show still. Mm-hmm. Oi Poloi show. That's intense, man. That's cool. That's cool. And then what was the first tour you ever went on? It was F minus. Oh, yeah, you told me about that. That was the first international, I would say, outside. Like the first one going to the UK, going to you know yeah. Sweden. Yeah. Before that, it was a lot of my boyfriend's band and you know all the Austrian bands. Whoever needed sound, I kind of, I kind of experimented with that. That makes sense. Mm. Hold on, let me push. This. Oh, all right. So how far, like, where did that tour go? Which one, the F-minus tour? Yeah, because you told me about that. That was supporting UK subs, right? Yes. So, okay, so <laughs> <laughs> you, you, st- you had your start in British punk. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, Brad from F-minus picked me up in Austria and said, you're coming with us on tour. And so I just packed my bags and that was that. And we went to... The UK on a squat tour. <laughs> you only played squats in the UK? Mainly we slept in squats. Yeah, we didn't. We there was. I don't even think if we ever had a hotel on that tour. It was all kind of DIY. Yeah. <laughs> Did you play all of the rest of Europe too? There was couple. Yeah, I think there was Holland, the typical Holland, Germany. I don't remember if we went to Sweden anymore or not. I don't know. Did you go down to Italy? Or Spain? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd be worried about a UK sub show in Italy and Spain. <laughs> <laughs> if you, you have to go see like a proper punk show in, in Italy or Spain to know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. But you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah, of course. <laughs> there's, there's some not cool people that like to go to those kind of shows mm-hmm. there too also. But okay, so you went on your first tour First time in England, <laughs> you're with UK subs playing squats <laughs> and sleeping in squats. Sleeping in squats and just crazy, you know, in the UK, no windows. Yeah. Just moist and rain. And yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> yeah. When you first tour the UK and you're doing it punk style, it's it can be pretty rough. And... But it was doable. Yeah. You know. And and in fairness, I should admit, us in RX, we never did the UK really punk style. We did it some DIY style, but we were very spoiled too, you know. 
I mean, our first time ever in the UK, we were in a bus already, you know? So, um, all right. You finished that tour. You started touring with other bands, basically. Mm -hmm. That's when I first, we first met you in London. With No Comply. Yeah. When we played the Underworld in Camden. Mm -hmm. That was it, right? Am I thinking correctly? No, I think that was the other the other venue with the balcony. I don't remember what was it called. Um, mm, was that the Yulu University of London? Could be. That we played anyway. Uh, the reason I'm talking about that is because obviously we're skipping like big chunks because as much as I would like to make a six hour episode with you, we can't <laughs> go through like. We can't go through like the <laughs> details of history of everything because I often joke that I've lived two people's worth of life already at my age. You've lived like 10 people's worth of life. Mm. <laughs> I can say that as somebody close to you. Um, eventually, you made your way to the United States of America. Mm -hmm. And who was the first band you toured with in the States? That was that's disingenuous. I know the answer to that because it was us. <laughs> it was RX. <laughs> uh, I was just being a dick. Um, so you came to America, Kathy Pello at the time. She was managing us. Yeah, I was in New York. Yeah, shout out to Kathy and Sergeant mm -hmm. House. Um, she found you via email mm -hmm. because you emailed her. I think right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So. It was 2007 in February, and we were starting a tour in Boston at that time. Oh, it was the House of Blues, I think, right? Mm -hmm. No, it was Axis when that still existed. Anyway, so we flew to Boston, and Kathy had told us, I found an engineer, and she'll TM and do stuff for you guys. And we're like, cool. Mm -hmm. We met you at the hotel, right? Yes. Yeah. Was that super weird for you? Just being like, I don't know what these dudes are going to be like. Like, what if they're terrible assholes, or you know? No, because I, um, I needed to escape out of New York. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, you were in New York hanging with the DMS dudes. Yeah, yeah, and it 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 got really punk, and <laughs> <laughs> I think that goes beyond punk. A lot Very hardcore. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just, yeah, I wanted I wanted out and. So I emailed Kathy and uh, cool. that's how I just knew it's going to be a new adventure. I'm always super excited before every tour, actually, no matter who I'm touring with, because I always know every tour is going to be life changing in some way. You meet somebody that changes your life. You uh, experience something, you go to new places. So Yeah, it was cool. Um, <laughs> we met at the hotel. We went on tour. You did so much on that tour, man. You really busted your ass. Seriously, you did everything. Mm. You were even cleaning the front lounge of the bus in the morning. <laughs> so everybody's just making a mess and you're still cleaning up. Uh, it was a home. Like it was I yeah. it was it was amazing. Was that your first time in a US tour bus? Yes. Oh. I was for me it was I was I was super happy. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm doing the pirate life. <laughs> that is a pirate yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. That was such a crazy tour. And when I look back on that whole Canadian shit now, I'm like, fucking, 
it was like, how could we be so foolish to not even worry about that? You know what I mean? But mm. we were just like dumb kids and shit like that, you know? Um, can I talk about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so basically what happened is uh, we were supporting gym class heroes. Uh, POS was also on the tour. Shout out Steph. Um, and Chaos, Kevin was opening. Mm-hmm. So we had like, what, three Canadian shows? I think we just did the typical ones, like Montreal, Toronto, and then we had one. Did we even do Vancouver? No, it was just those two. Okay. So, you know, we're 27 at the time, old enough to know something, but just being stupid. And that was when we were all, everybody was still partying super hard. So we were basically a band that needed to be babysat and taken care of, basically, for the most part, you know. And we got into Canada fine, right? It was coming yeah. back that was the problem. Mm-hmm. Basically, we, we didn't think about my visa. <laughs> yeah, we didn't think about your visa. And there was a huge drama at the border because uh, I was at Niagara. That's right. I it wasn't that we didn't think about my visa, it was that we fought me actually saying I'm just because I was on a tourist visa. Oh, that's right. Still. That's um, right. And you were working. Though. Yeah. So I basically, I fought me saying that I'm just a girlfriend of someone on a bus would have been enough to yeah. give me a pass. But they didn't. Mm-hmm. They held you in that office. We were at the border for like yeah, so long, basically. And they didn't want to let you, they didn't let you back in the States. No, because they took them hours to prove that I was actually working. They found yeah. out. Yeah. Them. And I remember... Specifically, one of those guys with that mustache. He was such a dick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it was like a movie. I, I remember. Was in, I was in trauma. I was in so much fear. Yeah. Through it. I knew that my life, like, because I really wanted to do the music industry and touring. And for me, that only at that point felt like America is the only place I can do that. So yeah. for him, I knew at this throughout all these hours i knew that they he he can take that away from me now any minute yeah i remember being in the immigration office at the border there at niagara and mm-hmm. they were holding you at a desk there mm-hmm. in one of those rooms and like you were just looking at us we were looking in at you like asking like what can we do and we had kathy on the phone we were trying mm-hmm. to do all this stuff eventually unfortunately there we had a show that night yeah and it was either in Buffalo or Rochester, I remember, I think. And you had to stay there at the border. Yeah, they put me in a border cell, yeah. Yeah. How long were you in that border cell? Till the next day. Because. Or two days. I don't, I don't remember. It was only three days later that you reunited with us, wasn't it? No. It was a whole week. Oh, that's week right. And a half. It was a week. I remember it being Minneapolis mm-hmm. that you we saw you, right? Mm-hmm. You actually made it back over the border. Well, after, they, you know, they put me in a border cell because I got deported. Right. So they were about to uh, fly me out of Toronto a couple of days later um, back to Europe off this continent um, because I basically worked on a tourist visa so and said 
when you get deported, you have a 10-year ban, which is, which you can't really take off. So when I was in a border cell, it was basically for me, I was meant to go home. And that was that. And not coming back to the U.S. for another 10 years. But you didn't let that happen. No, I don't know what happened in me. Just, I don't know if it was, till this day I think about it, it was such magic. Yeah. The universe was so imp <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so in game. Yeah. I made it across and I'm not a criminal, but I made it across. You did it on a bus, right? Yes, I did it on a Greyhound bus and then I kept chasing you guys for another week, um, changing close to make sure i'm not being followed i yeah, yeah. i went undercover <laughs> or I, in my head i just went totally like yeah <laughs> russian spy undercover that's what's amazing though <laughs> you you hit what would be the end of the road for so many people so many people would be like i'm sitting in a border cell yeah an immigration <clears throat> cell basically game over mm -hmm. i'm not gonna fight this and ruin my life or whatever but and this is very true to how I know you mm -hmm. and your inner core, <laughs> which is you'll face any situation. You're literally one of the most brave people I know. You know that, right? And it's not the stupidity kind of brave because you obviously like weigh out risks and think about stuff. Mm. You, are, you are one of the bravest people I know. So how the hell... Did you get on a bus from that cell? <laughs> a survival kicked in. <laughs> Did you escape? Um, no, they eventually let you go somewhere with an order to get a plane ticket. That yeah, you, yeah, right. They they put me on a Greyhound bus to Toronto Airport. Um, oh, okay. And I got off in Toronto, and you told me you guys told me you have a friend in Toronto. In case I need something, that's the only thing you guys gave me was his number, Chris's number. Uh, yeah, and I put that in my pocket. So it was, it was so much magic in this whole situation. I stood in Toronto. I got off the bus, and I'm like, I'm not going back, and I'm risking this. But by me risking it in that moment, I knew if they find me, I will then be in real trouble. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I escaped basically to your friend's house, and we then made a plan. And I, it was, I was very smart and very. <laughs> I can't explain that feeling. It was just a survival. I can't. I don't. I'm just so in awe of every time I'm telling that story because I don't know how that even really happened to the point where a woman showed up the next day with a passport and yeah. Yeah. It was. It's so badass. I got on a Greyhound bus, but I miscalculated. This is where I know that I'm actually being very protected is I got on a Greyhound bus and when we stopped, I realized we're stopping at the same border and I'm about to walk onto the same fucking sheriff that was right. 
you know, interrogating me for three hours. And I walk in there and he is in the room. Yeah. And just these moments, slow motion moments, me then going to the window, being asked questions, going through all of that, getting back on a bus and then leaving the border is... That's, uh, I'm getting chills thinking about it right yeah, now. Yeah, it was a lot of chills. I know the emotions because I was there when the original thing happened and yeah. just feeling all that stress and anxiety. And, and you know, you know, you know what that week and, or nine days was like without you? We had to load our own gear. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I had to set up my own. No. Um, the general was there. I remember. I know he was the one that cried the most yeah. when I came back. He worked hard, man. Yeah. We worked hard and we were hard on him because we were young, dumb idiots. So uh, he's a good kid then. Yeah. He's a good guy. I'm yeah. sorry all the times that I was a self-absorbed asshole to you, Jen, Andrew. His, name, his real name is Andrew. Remember his beard. <laughs> <laughs> And his really, really deep, deep, like deep old voice. man voice. Yeah. Lucy. yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, but it was, I mean, so it was magnificent when we finally got to see you again. Basically, we were reunited on the tour. Pretty sure it was Minneapolis, wasn't it? It was yeah. so perfectly organized. <laughs> you surprised us at Soundcheck. Yes. No, not at Soundcheck, during no. the show. Oh, that's right. During the show. During line check. That's right. Yes. Oh my god. I showed up to the I showed up to the venue, just talked my way into it, into the venue, then got to the front of house desk, then told the front of house dude what's up. He kinda just he was like, Oh, I don't know, okay, here's the talk back. And then I just started talking into the monitors. That's right. That was and that Joe got so pissed that he almost <laughs> he flipped his base because he thought somebody's playing a joke on him. It's like, this is not funny. She is not here. <laughs> and he got so dramatic. Uh, <laughs> no, that tour was so intense. I had such a bad flu during that time, too. I remember. Everything happened on that tour. And then... Did we go to Florida after that? I remember the tour was rooted really fucked up. Mm -hmm. Like whoever was booking Gym Class Heroes <laughs> then did not care about anything. Mm -hmm. Like they were like, fuck the world. Not my problem. I'm not driving. Mm -hmm. Let's torch this tour. Because mm -hmm. we were like going, We didn't we go zigzag like the zigzag, East Coast? Yeah. And then after that, we went down to Florida before like heading out west from Florida or something weird like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My next memory is just us being in Orlando, playing that place, that weird nightclub called Firestone, still on uh, that main street down there. I'm forgetting what it's called right now. It's the same street that The Social is on. It's just down the, down the street. I remember now. Yeah. yeah. And I remember waking up and going to the back lounge of the bus and looking out the window and it was like 11. It was so early. We were the support main support band, but you had all of our gear out already and you were like wiping down my synths and like I was just like, Oh my god, so good to have Lucy back. 
fun, fun memories. And then you went back to sleep or what? <laughs> no, I probably, <laughs> I probably went to the front lounge to eat some food. Probably have some cereal or something, right? Um, and then after that tour, you moved to California. Yeah, I just, I just stayed. You moved to Long Beach. <laughs> yeah, you asked me if I you remember. Yeah. You needed a roommate. Yeah, because Belle Cher and I were living mm -hmm. in that giant house all by ourselves. Nobody else was there yet. So I just got off the tour bus in Long Beach and that was that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, really nice five-bedroom craftsman home in downtown Long Beach on the one street that wasn't super hood. Mm -hmm. Now that whole area is pretty nice. Mm -hmm. It's so nice down there. But um, yeah, we lived on Cedar Avenue in that house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Crazy, man. <laughs> I you remember that. I still have this picture somewhere. Remember that time you were you put the dishwashing liquid in the washing <laughs> machine and I told you, I was like, don't do that. That's not going to work. You're like, it's going to be fine. I'm like, don't do that. It's not going to work. <laughs> and I had the picture. Basically what happened is she put the regular dishwashing liquid in there and so much soap foam started coming out. It literally covered the whole kitchen floor. And I have a picture of you mopping all of it up <laughs> with like this like uh face and then me like standing next to you going, mm -hmm. told you so. <laughs> I got to find that picture. Did you have a copy of that picture? I think, yeah, I do. Somewhere on Facebook probably. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. I got it. We got to find that picture. It's a good picture. That's when I would pull out my super axe and be like, I don't, I, I, did, I didn't know. <laughs> You dick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, and, okay, so, you know, that was like, that covers pretty much like 95 to 2007, right? 2007, mm -hmm. 2008. Because since then, I mean, you've toured with so many bands mm. since RX. Not just doing front of house, but eventually you uh, became tour manager, production manager. Have you been strictly monitor engineer before? That's the only thing I never wanted to really do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. You want to be, you would rather be behind the board. And if you don't want to, if you're not behind the front of house board, mm. you want to be in your own production office mm -hmm. with you know, all your things, your own little writer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey, I don't blame you. I just like my zone. Your zone, right. That's, oh, yeah. I, I, I started loving it, like not, um, even when I was younger, just uh, being at the show and being kind of in my closed off front of house area. Yeah. Nerding out. <laughs> I like my nerd zone. <laughs> yeah, that's legit. That's legit. So, Now, what are your sort of, do you have like a favorite type of act to do front of house for? Do you prefer pop electronic stuff because it's easy or do you prefer live bands because it's more interactive and it's more interesting for you? Do you even have a preference? I mean, I've tried everything. I kind of went through everything because I was... 
I don't know what I was chasing. I just wanted to really try and see what it's like to work with all kinds of different music styles. And, yeah. Um, but for me, mixing, I think the most fun I have is with experimental groups, with, you know, uh, instrumental, a lot of jam, a lot of... Uh, hmm. A lot of freedom. You know what you're describing. Yes, RX <laughs> was, yeah. I'm just kidding. No, you guys, it was Thundercat. It was also super fun. I bet Thundercat would be rad to do for a house. Yeah. When, when, when those three are in a zone, it was beautiful to mix because it's, it's a conversation. There's no set list and it just flows. But because they play so many different styles that they bring in, for me, the mixing i had to be like my flow was to keep up with the styles um the the eqing of it um for instance especially right. drums you know right he he could go into super jammy airy drums or jazzy then to really hard and tough so the attacks are always different yeah and that makes you a good sound engineer if mm. you are uh actually adjusting to that because you know most like seasoned vets are like set it and forget it. You know what I mean? Well, they set it and then they say that's it's a different way of thinking. Yeah. Um. You know, a lot of engineers have. I think there's two sides of looking at it. Thundercat doesn't go on stage with a set list. Um, they do, but it never really stays the same. Oh, always mixing mm -hmm. it up. That's cool. Were you doing front of house for the hives? No, I was doing monitors. That's the band, yes. The one friend. time you did yes. do monitors, was, okay, was the hives. Uh, you weren't doing in ear mixes, right? They just all used wedges. It was everything was analog, absolutely everything. There was no, no RF on stage, and you know the way the the especially the guitar players, just the way they move. It was just constant cable flipping. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, what she means by RF is radio frequencies for uh, wireless transmission to in-ear packs. Um, so what we're talking about is basically the Hives were a band that didn't use in-ears. They liked those speakers that you see like lead singers and guitarists putting their foot up on stage, you know, uh, for those who might not be familiar. But was that, I mean, that sounds pretty tough because they're like uh, dig in, drummer smashing, singers belting type band so everything was falling apart on stage but it was part of it my first ever hive show that i actually mixed monitors and just completely jumped into it unprepared really because they're just like just show up it was at a festival so not real rehearsal and uh, i was horrified i thought they're gonna crucify me in a backstage room after after the show i was shaking so hard because monitors were they were kicking the monitors off the stage and getting strangled in all kinds of cables and it was and i just kept yeah. trying to fix it but i was like oh my gosh this is the worst show of my life and uh i walked in a backstage room and Pelle was like okay you want the job <laughs> <laughs> and apparently uh i kind of i don't know i was that I, first show a festival yeah and what festival was it do you remember i don't know it was somewhere in spain somewhere in oh, spain. europe yeah 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 and uh i just kept 
jumping after the monitor wedges and you know yeah. trying to fix it and do you remember anything about their stage mix was it pretty basic drummer just wanted a bunch of kick and snare singer wanted a bunch of his own voice or did you have to make like actual mix for the band Oh, it was a contest who is louder than the other. <laughs> it was one of those. And a contest with the front of house PA. <laughs> <laughs> and because I'm a front of house person, I've, you know, I wasn't the one that would just, I would try and find a, uh, find a compromise so Dave doesn't struggle at front of house. So I was, yeah, yeah that was in play as well. So. Did they wear earplugs? Who? The band. Mm-mm. Oh no! Really? They just they just go bananas, but they all you know. Yeah, yeah. they. I mean, there's a reason they're one of the best live bands out there. Period. Costumes, everything was. Yeah. Yeah, all those suits. Did you have to deal with those suits too? Yeah. You had to deal with them. Mm-hmm. Please tell me they had more than one set, so that you could wash or air one out. It's like when they took it off after the show, it was dripping water for another two hours straight. That wasn't water. No, I know. (laughs) It was the grossest thing I've ever smelt in my life. But did they even have a wardrobe road case? Yeah, we had wardrobe road cases with, you know, all kinds of liquid underneath and salts. And yeah. And then we would uh, dry clean it as many times as you can. They still had to stink. No, that you can't. You you worried once and the next day it smells back to black. That's so gnarly. And then later on, they did that tour where they had to wear those jackets. Mm hmm. Those old Kentucky Fried Chicken suits mm-hmm. they were wearing, like Colonel Sanders suits, like that's crazy. Like I would, I you know, I feel lucky that I played in a band where we could just look like our own crappy selves and just wear whatever we wanted because it's so much more comfortable. You know, mm-hmm. imagine like having to look sharp on stage. <laughs> imagine dressing someone like Joe. After being on tour for three weeks and trying to squeeze him into his costume, <laughs> just the amount of resistance he would give. <laughs> uh, Fucking long limbs. That's true, man. That's very, very true. <laughs> so eventually you started coming to not even do sound on certain tours, right? Just mm-hmm. do tour managing? Yeah. 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 Do you like that? I like taking care of guys, yeah. Do you, when you're on those kind of tours though, or do you have thoughts of like, I wish I was doing sound or are you like, I'm cool with this job? Um, like it depends. Of course, there were certain tours where I was wishing I would be at front of house. Um, yeah. Um, in that moment, just during that one hour, but I also enjoy everything, you know, the tour management around it. So. Cause you, you tour manage Usher, right? No, production managed. Oh, you production manage. Mm-hmm. Is it the type of scenario where you're left to hire front house engineers and all that stuff? Or is that the type of situation where his management does that? It's it's between both. You and the management? Yeah, of course, yeah. As a production manager, you usually deal with crew hire. But audio would be pretty simple for Usher, right? 
No, it's actually he has a whole band. It's it's. Oh, he has a lot of full band. A full band, backup singers, dancers. Oh. There's there's right. a lot going on. Props to Usher. I thought he would be like, play the tracks. No. Let's go. No, his his production is a full on is a full on uh, beast. Well, if he has a full band, then obviously his band is sick. Mm-hmm. They got to be all rippers, right? Yeah. Okay. So, how many pieces in the band? Five. Okay. Six. Sorry, six. Including the backup singers. Plus backup singers. Plus backup singers. Six people in the band. Was it two guitarists, keyboard, bass, drums? Bass, drums, not a key. Two keyboardists. Mm-hmm. And then how many backup singers? Two, sometimes four. Depends. Some shows six. Every show is very different. Oh, every show is different because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. he never. Wait, so obviously he's not doing tours, right? He's not ever getting in a tour bus and going and playing 21 shows in a row. He did years ago, yeah. but Long now time ago. No, three years ago, I think was his, or three, two, three years ago, Australian tour, yeah. Did you tour to manage that tour? No, no, oh, I wasn't okay. with him in Australia, but he did a full-on tour. Oh, okay. But now it's all like single production fly dates, mm-hmm. like one show. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that an Usher show in March in New York City is not going to be the same as an Usher show in LA in April, just the next month? Yeah, it's almost always different. You mean totally different video or lights, totally different dancer and choreographies? The choreography is different. Um, Sometimes the whole look can be completely different. Um, Stage design is very different. The style is different, you know, um, Sometimes it's very musician heavy, like it's more about the band, the, highlighting the band and the jam of it. And he's a he's an amazing singer, an amazing dancer. Um, yeah. you know he comes from the whole Michael Jackson, uh, uh, Timberlake, and yeah, and all these guys. So super talented. And how m- you're dealing with all those changes then? Yeah. Even like, does he use video projection screens? Yes. Or like LED screens? Yeah. yeah. So is there like a creative director that's responsible for making that content? We didn't, we, yeah, we didn't always had one a specific, well, you mean a, a creative production manager there is. Or I like guess creative we, production manager. Yeah, and right. there's a creative team, um, which also changes. Um, the creative house changes sometimes from show to show. That's cool. Mm. So the whole process, the building process of it all is for me the exciting part. What kind of... Venues does he play? Casinos, outside stages, like what? A lot of what private is- casinos. Um, we have arenas. His shows are they're big. We always have minimum around ten k. You so your production office is in like a lot of not venue spaces. Basically, you're like in a trailer or you're in a casino, like dressing room somewhere. Like mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's always different. Yeah. Like you say, I could be outside, I could be in a casino or always or in a house or Are you standing side stage his whole performance? Yes. Really? Does he even have a monitor engineer? Oh, I guess they would for the band, right? We have a full on crew. It's almost I think we're about fifteen crew people. Um, is there more than one monitor engineer? No. Just one? We have an audio tech, but a monitor engineer. Monitor engineer that takes care of everybody on stage. Because the whole band has to be on ears, right? Yeah. On and, in-ears. And yeah. the dancers, yeah. That would be crazy if you had organized just even just wedges for 
Usher's backup band. You know what mm. I mean? Well, we do on top of it. We have wedges. Who has wedges? Drummer, keyboard players. Oh, they have like subs or mm -hmm. they don't use in-ears? They use both in-ears and, and yeah. wedges for, you know, specific details. That's luxurious. Mm -hmm. You know you've made it as a musician when you can mm -hmm. have in-ears and wedges. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you're um, yeah. It's nice. I like it. The last, well, RX didn't get to do our tour, but the last tour I was on, you know, we're on in-ears, but we were using the side fills for like putting subs and the kicks in and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And our front wedges downstage mm -hmm. or sorry, upstage. No, that's downstage, right? Towards the front. Mm. I always forget. Dude. I don't need that. Musicians like me don't need to know that kind of stuff, but we were using those for like kick and subs and stuff on, especially on wood stages. It feels so good. I love it. Um, but so with Usher, is the writer big? Because you have the band writer. You have the dancers writer. Yeah, the dancers, girls, band boys. The and band. Usher has his writer. Usher has a separate one, yeah. And then his fancy production manager, Lucy, gets her own writer. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. That's cool. What's some stuff you like to get on your writer? Um, or what is on your writer? Don't tell me with some stuff. I want to know what's on your writer when you're a production manager. On my trailer writer is... Perrier. Just plain or lemon or what? With with bubble gas? With gas? I meant there's flavored Perrier. No, just simple Perrier. Okay. All right. The original Perrier. Okay. Um, a lot of fresh pressed juices. Like bottled fresh pressed juices? Yeah. Okay. Um, a juicer, a bowl of fruit and veggie. Um what else? Um <laughs> but <laughs> it's got to be good if you're laughing let's have it uh, just typical european uh, bottle of red uh, baguette <laughs> cheese <laughs> oh, yes man. yes uh -huh. bunch of nuts and dried fruit and the reason we're laughing is because it is <laughs> it's so european and whenever you're on tour in europe every backstage room you have a tray of cheese vegetables cold cuts mm -hmm. it's nice a variety of breads okay so you get your euro spread i have my euro spread basically okay yeah mm -hmm. um probably minus the european touches that i like like the sliced radishes mm -hmm. and there's just a bunch of other stuff that i that i enjoy but anyway what else do you get like non-food items I know you get some non-food stuff on there, flowers or maybe... Yeah, I have flowers. Socks. A candle. Um, I like to get socks get on the Get smelly candle. Oh, candle? How mm -hmm. many candles? One. One good one. Mm-hmm. And? Mm -hmm. What else? Do you get any sweets on your rider? Chocolate. Obviously not a Hershey's bar. No. Dark Lint. chocolate. Lint. Lint? <laughs> I right. just like lint. Yeah, lint <laughs> and is toffee fae. Toffee fae are good. Mm -hmm. Toffee fae are good. Um, what else? There has to. There's no way it ends there. That's that's it. No. Bunch of Buddhas and crystals. <laughs> you don't bring those yourself? No, I do. Yeah, I have them in my production case. 
Is your production case a larger rolling case with drawers? I have two different ones, yeah. I don't I can't really bring the big one, you know, on one offs. It doesn't really Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Just, no. So what do you bring for one offs? Like a pelican or I have a pelican. It's yeah. good. A large size pelican? I have two. One of them is the <laughs> vibe box. <laughs> vibe box. So what do you have in there? Like the little like statuettes? Yeah. Maybe what? Any cloth or tapestries that you hang or anything like exactly. that? Exactly. And then uh, a bunch of candles, a bunch of crystals, a bunch of incense, weirauch, um, just a lot of my shamanic shink-shnack. Any incense? Mm-hmm. What kind of incense? Mm. Nagchampa, maybe? Yeah, all kinds of different ones. Whatever uh, I like, feel like. Yeah, a variety then. Mm-hmm. That's cool. And my Buddha statue and my uh, yoga mat and <laughs> that I never use. <laughs> so uh, overdone, but... It's the highest brow touring. You, 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 do you ever think about being in a van with F minus, being on tour in England with UK subs, playing squats while you're sitting in your production office? looking at your little shrine that you made, enjoying a fresh celery, lemon, turmeric, ginger juice. I do think about these moments a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think you're like an introspective and nostalgic person like yeah. me. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very nostalgic. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Don't you ever just trip out? On that? Yeah. All the time, on tour. Every single time I go to, you know, come to the... To a city, I think about who I've been there with before, you know, I'm walking through the venue remembering, oh, I was here with Spoon. This is, we just joked around in this corner and this fun stuff yeah. happened here or this terrible thing happened here and this sad part happened here. Like every venue for me just has so many different memories of different stages of my life too. Oh, I forgot you were with Spoon for a year or two, right? Mm. Yeah. So... Yeah. Likewise, do you ever get up to at a set change at like a big show or a festival, right? And mm -hmm. you get to the front of house area. You probably already have your page that you made during sound check. So you're just pulling up your page on the, the console, right? Digital console. Do you ever just have that moment where you're like there, you're about to man the ship and you're like, man, at one point this all began with uh, oi polloi mm -hmm. in this small Austrian basement mm -hmm. and me knowing nothing mm -hmm. and trip out on that I trip out on that a lot Do you, what do you feel when you trip out on it do you feel like this obviously it can't be one emotion but you know I mean it usually doesn't come before the show I'm, before the show I'm on such a oh you're too focused I'm, I'm super I'm super hypersensitive super focused on every detail on everything so I'm on high alert just this okay that makes sense crazy energy and then once I tackle through everything and feel comfortable and really feel as I mix with the room when I really feel the room and it's flowing with the music and I start to flow with it that's that's when I go in a state of gratitude and I oh. think about uh, a lot of the different people and bands and just how it all happens. It's yeah. It's just a state of gratitude. 
Yeah. And that's how you know you love what you do. Yeah. Yeah. Do you miss mixing just punk bands, hardcore bands, simple stuff? Yeah. It's okay if you don't. If you'd be like, uh, I had my time with it, but I prefer like No, there's bit. there's definitely certain music where I had my my time with it to do it every day on tour. Like I feel like my I've also changed depending on myself. Like I always wanted to kind of embody myself. I don't know if I'm explaining that right. <laughs> um the bands were kind of growing with with uh my development, I would say. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Mm. Makes sense. I get it. So, yeah, I mean, it sounded complicated. <laughs> well, it just means that you are also very adaptive. You can adapt to situations, obviously, and you can adapt to different situations as far as mixing. You know. Well, adapting, I wouldn't really say. Like I was when I was on a punk tour. Like I was living the punk life and super enjoying it when i was on a metal tour i was yeah. living like i would always morph into it i would say and the same thing with the with the mixing yeah it would develop that was part of your youth though no what meaning do you still think that if you got put in a van in three years when we can tour again with a punk band playing mm-hmm. small DIY shows, do you think you would snap back into that like you did before? Yeah, if it's a band that I that I like or if it's right. a band that I believe in, totally. I would enjoy the hell out of it going across the country in a van and, you know, um, playing small club shows with super energy, high energy in a room. Yeah. I would super enjoy it. That's cool. That's legit. So it's safe to say, like, I miss playing shows. You miss doing sound. Yeah. And doing shows too, right? Mm -hmm. Which is like, duh, all of us are feeling (laughs) that way. I didn't for a while. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. There was, there was times where I didn't appreciate it anymore, where it just felt like work. Me too. Yeah. I've talked about that in depth. Yeah. Mm. And that was me taking it for granted. It was me not appreciating it myself. That's just me. I I wouldn't say just that. I I wouldn't label it as something that negative. I think um, it just not being present. Definitely wasn't present. <laughs> you know, not being really like the depth of present was different because we're growing, we're evolving. I think we're looking back and seeing seeing the positive developments in, yeah. in a lot of it. Yeah. So people like me who spent so much of my life not being present and not being mindful, uh, like most people, the only times that you kind of like snap to being present or being mindful is when you're in pain or suffering. You know, that's how you like before you're mindful or present. Um, I think a lot of people are similar in where all of a sudden when they're in pain, both physical or emotional, then they become very present. You know, the the key is for me was learning how to be present, not being forced to be present through pain and suffering, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what really helped me just see so much clearer 
and I'm not fully there yet. I'm still on my mm-hmm. way, you know, like we've discussed, but it helped a lot. It was like the beginning of everything. Yeah. So what have you been up to since? What have you been up to since, what, like March? Well, I got grounded in March. Um, I was meant to be on a really busy, this was meant to be a really busy year for me. I was looking forward to a lot of awesome productions. Um, I was on my way to Jakarta. Um, with a big, with a big crew, an amazing project, and suddenly, it's like, all right, we're not going. This is not happening. We have to stay, and uh, yeah, and that was that. That was with that uh, Southeast Asian production company, right? Label, like that whole music group. It's Eighty Eight Rising. Eighty Eight Rising mm-hmm. from LA. Yeah. I always forget mm-hmm. the name. Yeah, I mean. Obviously, those are big shows. It's a big mm-hmm. production, right? Were, were you production manager for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was really excited. So I was, I was kind of looking forward to a, to a crazy year before I'm turning forty, basically. And then uh, we stopped, and since then, life has been different, very different. Are you turning forty next August? Mm-hmm. Why do I think? Why do I keep thinking you're two years younger than me? You're only one year younger than me. Yeah, I'm only you're eighty one. I'm eighty. Yes. Oh, damn! You're you're getting old. I know. <laughs> How did you get that eighty eight rising gig? Did they just find you through other stuff, um, or just through somebody you know? I don't need to know the personal details. I don't. I don't really case. remember. It happened years and years ago. This wasn't the first time I was working with them. How long have you been working with 88 Rising? Um, I did um, I did a tour with them, I think, three years ago in uh, Southeast Asia. A short one. And then they called me back for this one. What's a short one? Like Jakarta, Bangkok, Singapore or something? It was something, on a cruise ship. Oh, so, it was a cruise ship. Yeah. So it went from Singapore to Bangkok, uh, Manila. Those are long cruises. Yeah. So you were on that ship for how long? I think four days, five days, days. Oh, so it was a normal cruise line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, we we did a cruise. RX did. Mm-hmm. We did the 311 cruise. That's right. The jam. <laughs> oh, my freaking goodness. It was fun. I know. We went into it going like, what is this going to be like? And we're like, this was rad. We had fun, you know? I mean, four days was plenty. Yeah. I was ready to get the fuck off of that yeah. ship after four days, but. It was fun and literally playing on stage while you can feel the boat like pitching and rocking like is is a trip. Mm-hmm. But um, do you like Southeast Asia? Yeah, I really like it. Do you have favorite places there or do you like all of them for different reasons? Um, well, I really like Thailand. I've been there on vacation myself, backpacking, um, diving. You mean other times or would you just stick around after those tours? Um, at the beginning it was a planned vacation and then I used to come and just extend anytime I would finish a tour somewhere in Asia, I would try and go down to Thailand to hang for a week or so. What was that Leonardo DiCaprio movie? The beach. Do you remember that movie? Of course I do. (laughs) You're so the type of person that would end up in that commune on the beach. (laughs) That's kind of what happened to me in 2020, no? Where? 
in Thailand? No, I would no. say you. You're talking existentially. Yeah, That's existentially. What yes, yes. Okay. 2020, I would yeah. say the beach. <laughs> but also comically. Yeah. You could totally be a character in that movie in the beach. <laughs> and I know it. That's why I'm careful. I need to check myself a bunch. Yeah. Well. That's not to say that you aren't conscious. I just mean like you being like this world traveling, super on a paper, like super interesting person. You know what I mean? Like you live the type of life that somebody who lives what's considered to be a normal life could only fantasize about. Mm. The good and the bad stuff. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like I'm not, I'm no authority on your life. I'm not judging your life. I'm just saying like you live a really rich Super interesting life. But it's also about the presence. Yeah. You know. You're right. You're right. And you've been gaining so much presence. I wasn't always present. No, you were like mm -hmm. me. We were the opposite of present. Mm -hmm. You were really the opposite of present too. I was always in a future. I was always, I always needed to be three steps ahead of everyone. So yeah, that's, well, where, I, that's where I lived. <laughs> it takes one to know one, which is why I can call you out for that because mm -hmm. I was the same. And we do what they call just time traveling, mm -hmm. meaning we're constantly thinking about the future through anxiety because it's propelled by our existence in the past through our depression. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because some people say, you know, like anxiety is being stuck in the future and depression is being caught in the past. And people like you and me were everywhere, but here now, like exactly. present. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally. That's why now, like when you and me talk, like it's easy. We, it's easy for us to just talk for a super long time about this kind of shit. We're just like, oh, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. I get it. Um, so like aside from you doing your runyon hikes super la euro <laughs> la <laughs> person <laughs> what else have you been doing have you been painting did you say you were painting yeah there was a strange melancholy time i think in april march april and may where i literally thought i will not be able to go back to europe and i was just i I don't know, something switched in my head where I just started doing, I was like, I have nothing else to do. I better just start doing things that I want to do. And uh, I started painting, I started playing music or trying to play music, <laughs> just doing different things that I usually didn't used to do. Yeah. Go on super long hikes into the Griffith and then sit there for like three hours and write. And oh, cool. So, not me, but... It became me, I guess. Were you going through like the old zoo up Griffith? Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. That's sick. For real. Yep. So what are, what are the some what are some of the other things that you've been doing? And then <laughs> um when I kind of felt safe to start meeting with people, I I started doing uh, shamanic ceremonies. And you yourself are studying to be like, what would it be called? A healer? Group? Yeah. Somebody um, who I leads? mean, yeah. I've been kind of, for the last four years, trying to figure out um, what else I would like to do aside from touring. And um, because of it, I went to... 
do ayahuasca in Peru years ago. And that took me, I was just super fascinated with uh, the shamanic ceremonies, with the spiritual world and with the actual grid and because uh, I could really understand it. It really made sense to me. So mm -hmm. I started digging into it more and more and more over the last three years. And during quarantine, that's all I did basically due to no work. Um, I was really digging into shamanism, uh, body work, healing, um, especially because I needed it for my, I would say my own survival through 2020. That's legit. That's really legit. I didn't know you went to Peru for that ayahuasca mm. ceremony. I mean, obviously you had to fly to Lima, but it wasn't in Lima, was it? Mm -mm. No, I know. How far out of Lima did you travel to the, to the mountains? Another hour and a half. Okay. So it was out there, but it wasn't the most remote area. It felt really remote. That makes sense. Yeah. Did you spend any time in Lima? No. Kind of just went there to do that. I was very unconscious conscious. Um, I went there to do a mission to dig into my brain and into my feelings. And then I needed to get out and into a safe environment. There was no space for me to go on adventures. I was in my head. Right. Solving problems. Yeah. <laughs> I can totally understand that. Yeah. So how long do you think it will be before you are finished with this process of becoming a healer or is it the type of thing like practicing medicine where it's kind of like a lifelong pursuit? Um, I don't know when someone can say that they're ready to actually right. teach. I think that just naturally happens. I'm just, uh, I think becoming a healer will eventually be what it's going to lead into. But what I'm focused on is just my own understanding and healing and and uh, my my personal therapy. And through that, I'm learning different different kinds of um, tools, you know, to work through it. And so, like, you'll know when you know, type thing. Yeah, if I feel like I wanna, I want to help other people or kind of make make use of it of all the knowledge that i'm kind of learning by trying to work on myself and uh be with myself become more sensual you know more intimate with uh let's say my soul yeah um that's changing the soul mm -hmm. it's still a lot for my head to kind of take in or to wrap my own head around mm -hmm. like the soul, mm -hmm. you know, I can't tell where like somebody's subconscious ends and their soul begins. I can't tell if soul is another word for energy is another word for, you know, consciousness. Mm -hmm. I still like grapple with that, especially these days. I feel like people, the concept of spirituality and our soul, I guess, which relates to that these days, mm -hmm. um, seems to have been solely put into, I guess, kind of like the healer new age culture, 
which <clears throat> I feel like can have so much benefit and is so legit, but at the same time has so many people coming into it that are not legit, mm-hmm. that aren't really producing beneficial results for people. Exactly. Now, I'm not an expert in that. You being so involved in that, would you? do you think you observe the same thing? Yes, of course, because it's still humans right. teaching, you know, and so you just have to really learn to, you need to have discernment, even in spirituality. Just because somebody says they're spiritual doesn't mean that they're doing everything right, you know? I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's... <laughs> that, it's still yeah. humans behind it, so... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Humans, man. That's like what I miss the most. And I'm somebody that always thought that I didn't need humans. Like I could just be on my own forever, you know, and I didn't care. And I thought I didn't need a bunch of humans showing up to my band's live performance. I didn't care. And I realized now that I was wrong. I was just denying myself of my need for human connection, you know, for my own, not just for my own traumas, but just from my own ego protecting myself you know like yeah but that's duality you have to experience both sides you know you are you have experienced what it means to live in your ego and feel separated you separated yourself from the community and now you can reverse that which you will um yeah you're meant to experience both sides i'm always battling to pull myself out of thinking through my ego though You know, I feel like it's like a mud pit and I have like half of my body out on the edge (laughs) and I'm pulling myself out Mm -hmm. and then I get tired and I get sucked back in. (laughs) I can't wait till the day I feel like I'm actually like out of the pit completely where I'm totally disassociated from that, you know, and I know and I guess like the analogy of calling my ego or our ego a mud pit is not totally accurate because the ego isn't all bad, obviously. Like the ego is the thing that in hunter-gatherer times was the thing that kept us alive. It was the thing that had us go hunt or get food or like protect ourselves, right? And in modern civilization, since we don't have to do those things, we can just buy food and house shelter. Our ego has to find other things to do. And so we start to trip on, you know, mm-hmm. our image and how we're seen and not looking like this or whatever it is, right? It's so annoying. The ego, so troublesome. Just feels like a system failure. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's crappy software, right? It's, it's just a, yeah, it's a stupid virus. Yeah. No. Yeah, but it's just... Uh, there's so much about our world around us right now. I feel like that kind of like pokes at the ego and tries to like get it riled up, you know, like social media is poking the ego and it gets people to like flex their ego. And because we're experiencing the shadow now, everything that you experience within yourself, all of the fears that you're going through, it all happens on the outside at the same time. That's something that, took me a really long time to understand that uh, um, you're seeing mirrors. Oh, so you mean to say that if we're having issues on the inside that we think are just keeping in our mind, the shadow is 
how it causes us to act or react outside of that that we're not aware of. Mm-hmm. Is that what you mean? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. And it's also collective energy. Yeah. You know, the vibe, collective energy within the air, depending on, you know how it is when you're on tour and you're flying into a certain country and suddenly you feel a weird vibe when you get off the airplane. <laughs> yeah. Like it, like you drop like freaking three stories down and it's cold. Yeah. You but, just you just described flying to Heathrow. <laughs> yeah. But it's your you're dropping into that country has a different density of history of like what what people carry with them. So that's something I observed on tour for instance just going from country to country my I would feel it my vibe would just adjust to the country and uh Yeah. You know how I do that? Yeah. Through food. <laughs> See, but it's the same thing. <laughs> no, no, that's not the only way, but that's the most pleasurable way for anybody to yeah. do that. But yeah, that's legit. <laughs> do did you like your spring rolls earlier? Yeah, I do. They were good, right? Mm-hmm. You got them from Fa Hung Fat in Long Beach, which is one of the best pho places mm-hmm. here. It's 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 our favorite pho place, but that's awesome. Um, honestly, I could sit here and just ask you question after question after question but you've been a good sport for this long so for now we'll end it here that's good is there any last thing you'd like to say Mm. anything at all I don't know it's the end of 2020 almost Mm -hmm. we still have a couple weeks left Yeah. does that signify a lot for you are you hoping to leave a lot behind? I'm leaving a lot behind, yes. Good. A lot, a lot behind. And I'm excited for all the new things. I'm excited for you too, buddy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Old friend, mm-hmm. pal. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for being here, Lucy. I appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, have a good day. You too. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard.